Morning. I am stalling while I bring up my, oh, there we go. All right, never mind what I just said. Okay, uh, I want to welcome everybody out this morning. Uh, we are still in the book of 2 Corinthians. Um, there is so much in here. Uh, I'm actually going to back up and do verses 1 through 4 again in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and I'm going to try to finish the whole chapter. We shall see. But anyway, let me give you the briefest recap I can. 1 Corinthians, my recap is the church was in bad shape because they weren't behaving, and he had to consult with them to try to get them disciplined. The end. Now, the uh, Second Corinthians is kind of a recap of that because it's still, well, you'll see. So we started this book um, just a few weeks ago, and it's still Address a Mess series because it's still a mess. So this church has been absolutely in plagued with people who are either not believers trying to, to, you know, to tear the church down or believers who are just out of the will of God. And Paul is really focused on trying to uh, get them straightened out. Now, as I said last week, this uh, letter is arguably one of the most personal and autobiographical that he wrote, that the Apostle Paul wrote. And the reason that's the case is because he invested so much of himself in this church. It's not that he didn't invest himself in other churches he helped establish, but this one he had a very, uh, very uh, active hand in helping it be established. He actually spent um, close to two years, 15 months, I think it was, with them, uh, helping them get lined out. So he had a lot invested uh, in this church, so it was very personal to him. Uh, before he wrote 2 Corinthians, though, Paul decided uh, he would visit the Corinthians again, and it didn't go well. You know, despite his first letter, I mean, he really thought the first letter was going to make a difference. But despite that first letter, when he got there, his opposition to his ministry and his message was still there, and it wasn't much different than what it was before. There were people actually questioning his apostleship and questioning his messages and questioning, uh, actually, his, his entire theology. So it was a really tough time for him. Uh, there were people that said that he didn't have any integrity, so he shouldn't be considered as an apostle. Now, the reason they said he didn't have integrity was kind of stupid. Um, it's actually kind of two reasons. They <laughs> he had to change his plans. He was supposed to meet with them, right? He gave them a time he was going to meet with them and how he was coming. Some things came up. I mean, that happens all the time in ministry. And so he contacts them. Uh, and so they said since he was coming at a different time and taking a different route, he had no integrity and shouldn't be called an apostle, which is what the Bible likes to call really stupid. Um, and so they got mad at him for that. Realistically, generally, people like that are looking for something to be mad about because they know there's problems within. I think that's mainly what was going on. Um, so uh, he wrote this letter to defend himself and to kind of share the fact that he'd been struggling also and that they were in this together. Uh, and he likely opened up like that. You don't see him really open up that personally with any of the other letters he wrote. But I think the reason he did that was he wanted them to know, listen, I'm not perfect, and I have problems, and I have struggles just like you. I know you're trying to figure this whole church thing out, but understand, I, I suffer with you. I'm not, I'm not above suffering and, 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 and being persecuted, so I suffer with you. And he wanted them to know, you know, listen, not only are you not the only ones that are struggling, but others have been where you are, and they prevailed. So that's basically uh, what he was doing. Now, in today's message, Paul's going to discuss the freedom that forgiveness affords a believer, right? So I titled the message, Forgiveness and Freedom. Uh, I don't know if anybody here has ever had a problem forgiving someone. Anybody ever have that issue? I have. We all have, I think, pretty much. Um, and it can cause a lot of issues, a lot of collateral damage, if you will, right? And so he's going to address that. So let's jump in. For, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we'll do verses 1 through 4 again. He says, So I decided that I would not bring you grief with another painful visit. For if I cause you grief, who will make me glad? Certainly not someone I have grieved. That is why I wrote, you, uh, I wrote to you as I did, so that when I do come, I won't be grieved by the very ones who ought to give me the greatest joy. 
Surely, all, uh, surely you all know that my joy comes from your being joyful. I wrote that letter in anguish with a troubled heart and many tears. I didn't want to grieve you, but I wanted to let you know how much love I have for you. Okay, now, Paul wanted the Corinthians to be the church that made him rejoice. I mean, he was so vested. He wanted them be, to be the church that made him rejoice, not the church that's behavior made him feel sorrowful and regret. And that's what he was feeling, right? So rather than go to them, he intentionally and patiently gave them more time to change their ways before he visited them, right? Uh, just writing this letter to them was painful for him because he had such high hopes and they were letting him down. I know none of you have ever had a child or anybody that, that lets you down, but if things don't go the way you plan, it's painful. If things go opposite with your friends, with the relationship you've been in, it's painful. This was painful to him. It was like having his entire, all of his children kind of turn on him. It was painful for him. So he wrote this letter uh, because he thought, you know what? I don't want to have this sorrow anymore. I want to handle this right now so that problem is out of the way. So, um, you know, after he went to them the first time and nothing changed, after the first letter, he thought, I'm not going to go there again. This is what he's saying. I'm not going to come to you while you're still a mess because in the Chris Mosley version, it's basically I am sick of feeling sorrow for a church that should bring me blessing. And when I feel sorrow, I can't lead you with the joy that I want to lead you with. So I'm not going to come until you get some of this stuff straightened out. Uh, instead, I'm just going to be writing to you. You know, I'm going to write to you until you get that time, then I'll come to you. But if he would have went when he planned to go, and God knew, when usually when your plans change, God has a reason for changing them, right? And I think God knew that, man... I, if I send him there, he, he might get discouraged. These people are ridiculous. I don't know if God speaks like that, but, you know, in my mind, he does. But so that's, uh, that's basically why I think God changed his plans. He didn't want him to have to go there and be disappointed again. Now, notice again what Paul said at the end of verse 4, uh, 2 Corinthians 2, uh, 4. He said, I wrote that letter in great anguish with a troubled heart and many tears. I didn't want to grieve you, but I wanted to let you know how much love I have for you. Seems kind of strange after he just said, basically, you guys have been a huge disappointment. <laughs> I'm giving you more time to straighten everything out because you're a huge disappointment. Uh, but here he's saying, listen, I want you to know how much love I have for you. And I love how he was reminding them that the reason I am putting so much time into correcting you is I want what's best for you. I want you to succeed. Have you ever noticed when you're being disciplined, you always want to blame the person who's disciplining you? That's called transference. You know, we like to transfer our guilt. Right, and our negative emotions to the person who's pointing it out to us. It's the same thing here. I mean, he loved them, and he wanted them to know, listen, I love you. That's why I'm trying to fix this. It's the, but the reason I'm writing these letters, these painful letters, painful for you, painful for me. The reason I'm writing them is because I love you, and I want to see you blessed like God intended to bless you. Right? The whole time, God wanted to bless him, and this had to be really, really hard for him. Right? Now, only someone who really loves you. Remember this, kids. Only someone who really loves you will tell you when you're doing something that could harm you or when you're doing something that could put you on a path that you don't want to see the end of. I mean, only someone who loves you will tell you and warn you if they think you're in danger. Even if they know it's going to hurt your feelings, even if they know it's going to make you mad, they're going to tell you the truth because they want to see what's best for you. Because it's better to take a chance on offending someone than to stand back and watch their life be ruined. It's better to take that chance. Uh, and it's difficult when you have to do that. I get it, but it's still necessary. So you have to respect that Paul was willing to do that, right? Now, in verse 5, Paul makes it obvious, and you're going to see this as we move on, that there was one person 
not only one person, but mainly one specific person behind a lot of this opposition and trouble. There was a big troublemaker uh, in Corinth, which is, do you think, how would you know they're all, you know, so messed up? Well, I mean, this one evidently was like the driving force behind a lot of his problems. Isn't it amazing how much problems one person can cause in a church? Oh, my gosh. I'm not going to give you examples <laughs> because I'm afraid a name will slip out of my mouth. But in 25 years, trust me, I have come across that guy or that gal who their life is a struggle, and so they want to make sure that yours is too. You know what I mean? And a lot of times when they're causing a lot of trouble within the body, it's my job to deal with them. And I understand Paul's writings when I'm in a situation like that because you're just tired of someone causing so much trouble, but you have to love them enough to try to bring them back into the fold. That's kind of what Paul was trying to tell them. Listen, I'm not doing this because I enjoy it. I don't enjoy disciplining you. Did anybody here ever enjoy disciplining their kids? <laughs> There's some people you just can't look at when you ask that question. But, um, you know, nobody enjoys it. The first time that I swatted my daughter's butt, it, it, I cried more than she did. Because I didn't even smack it hard. You know how you are as a new time parent. You're like going, I'm going to teach you a lesson. <laughs> you know, because you don't want to hurt them. She was playing with plug-ins. And I was terrified she was going to get shocked. And she just, every time I'd say no, she'd look at me and smile and reach again. I'm like, oh, it's between me and you now, isn't it? <laughs> so I walked up and just went like that on her diaper. And she gave me this broken heart look. And I ran to the bathroom and cried. <laughs> because I'm a tough guy when it comes to discipline. But yeah, I, I get that. Okay, let's move on. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. It says, I am not overstating it when I say that the man who caused all this trouble, notice he said the man who caused all this trouble, hurt all of you more than it hurt me. Okay, and probably what he means there is, he was stirring all this trouble up, which was killing the spirit of the body. And so they were probably arguing and bickering, and there was probably dissension and, and groups and cliques, and it was, you know how it is when somebody starts trouble. That's probably uh, what it was. But it says, hurt all of you more than you hurt me. Verse 6, uh, most of you opposed him, and that was punishment enough. Now, however, it's time to forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may over, uh, be overcome by discouragement. So I urge you uh, now to reaffirm your love for him. Again, it's evident that at least a significant part of his troubles was due to this one man, right? But amazingly, the Corinthians, in this instance, actually did what they were supposed to do, which is a shocker with everything we've read about this church. They actually stepped up and discipline this person. And a lot of it may be for what Paul said. He was causing them more trouble than he was causing Paul. And it may not have been because they were spiritual. It may have been because they're going, I'm sick of this punk. That might, that might have been what was behind it. I don't know. But uh, they actually stepped to the plate and they disciplined this person. Because like I said, he didn't just cause Paul issues. He, called them issues. he caused them issues. And that's why Paul wanted uh, them to begin this healing process with this offender. Because evidently and understandably, the Corinthians had been really hard on this guy. Okay, evidently they did maybe a step or two above disciplining him. And maybe it wasn't done in love, you know. And so he was saying, okay, okay, I, I appreciate you stepping up. But, you know, enough's enough. You can't shun the guy forever. You can't treat him like an outsider forever. So evidently this guy had a passion and wanted to repent. And they weren't giving him space to. And that's why Paul said that. That's why he said, you know, he's been punished enough. Now it's time to forgive and to comfort him. 
right? Then in verse 8, he added, I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. He's saying, remember when you loved him? Remember back before the troubles when you actually loved this guy? Remember the joy and the, and the fellowship you had? Let's get back to that, is what he's saying. Remember that love and show that love because enough is enough. I mean, I've always told parents when I end up counseling parents and, and they ask about disciplining their kids, I go, don't go overboard. You know, if, if they, you know, do something they're not supposed to do, there's some parents get mad and they come out and go, you're grounded for 11 years. You know what I mean? And I'm like, go, number one, you're never going to keep that. Number two, ease up. You know, let the punishment fit the crime. Let them know that you're punishing them because you love them, not because you're some control freak. Uh, right? And that's kind of where he was at now. He's saying, okay, enough's enough. You know, you've, you've, you've punished them. That's enough. Uh, and what Paul... Uh, said was was more just a more than a plea for the Corinthians you know to forgive this man it was more than that he was saying that refusing to forgive this guy is just playing into the enemy's hand he's saying if you continue to hold a grudge against this guy well listen you may have been working against Satan when you were trying to discipline to bring him back into the fold but if you go overboard and push him out of the fold with your discipline you're playing into Satan's hand Yet lack of forgiveness always plays into Satan's hand. Listen, Satan knows that he can't take our salvation. He knows that. He loves it when people think he can, because they're never going to be as effective as they could be. But he knows that he can't take their salvation. So the next best thing for him to do is sabotage. And by sabotage, I mean getting believers sidetracked with silly quarrels and grudges and things like that that have no place in a church. You wouldn't believe some of the, some of the quarrels I've had to deal with in churches over the years. I've even been called into other churches that were having issues. Then you walk in thinking, did the pastor have an affair? Is there money missing? And you walk in, they're like, no, they want to buy pews with red pads, and we want to buy them with green. And I'm going, look at the time. You know, that's, I mean, you wouldn't believe some of the dissension. Uh, and the enemy loves that. That's sabotage. He goes, listen, now they're not going to be reaching anybody. They're too busy fighting with each other, right? And Anger and, and dissension and bitterness are the enemy's favorite tools for destroying a church. His absolute favorite tools for destroying a church. Especially bitterness. Because bitterness is a cancer that eats you from the inside out. It makes you ineffective. It makes you bitter. It makes you nasty. It makes you vindictive. It makes you gossipy. Right? And, and ultimately, it can destroy a, a, a relationship. It can destroy your faith and your relationship with God, and it can destroy a church quickly, right? I mean, it hinders the forgiveness process. That's what bitterness does. Bitterness is what's talking you out of saying, I forgive you. Bitterness is usually what's talking you out of saying, I forgive you. So in essence, bitterness keeps anger and dissension alive and kills love and unity. That's what bitterness does. So Paul was saying, enough, all right? Enough. Listen, as believers, when we abandon the fundamental Christian principles that the church is built on, I mean the church, the body of Christ, we're in trouble. And those principles are, are love and grace and forgiveness. That's who God is. If you can't love and if you can't forgive and if you can't show grace, which is the Greek word charis, meaning unmerited favor, to give someone something they don't deserve, if you can't do those things, you are literally pulling the legs out from underneath Christianity. That's what Christianity stands on, love, forgiveness, and grace. Those are the most effective tools we have for successful ministry. And if you stop forgiving people, if the church doesn't forgive people and try to bring them back, what ends up happening is it destroys their ministry because you're getting rid of the three most important things that we have, love, grace, and forgiveness. Thankfully, Paul's writings indicate 
that they did, in fact, forgive this offender. We'll see that as we move on. So, again, that's kind of shocking with them, but at least they did. Uh, but Paul referred to their forgiving this offender in 2 Corinthians. We'll look at this, uh, chapter 7. We'll look more at this when we get to it. I just want to read it, starting in verse 8, uh, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8. It says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of what? Repentance. Now, I'm going to throw this in for free. Repentance is the Greek word metanoia, and it means a change of direction or a change of mind, okay? Um, I'm going to throw this in, too. Have you ever heard people say that you have to repent and believe to be saved? Okay, that's right and that's wrong. It's wrong because they're not two separate steps. Because I've had people come to me and say, when do I know I've repented enough? I'm like, I think you're missing the point, right? Forgiveness, I mean, I'm sorry, repentance and belief and faith are two sides of the same coin, okay? You can't change your mind about who Jesus is without repenting, and you can't believe without changing your mind. So when you change your mind and say, I believe that he is the one who died for my sins, you're doing both at once. You are changing your mind about Jesus because you've believed in him. They're not two separate steps. They're two sides of one coin. You can't believe without changing your mind about who Jesus is. Anyway, so it says, uh, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might uh, not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. Now remember, salvation, it doesn't always mean of the soul. It can, the word just means deliverance, right? Uh, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, with eagerness uh, and with earnestness, this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you what vindication of yourselves, what uh, indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourself to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for, uh, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to the, in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy uh, of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. So in the, you see in chapter 7 that they did actually forgive this guy. I mean, we'll, we'll get to that eventually. I knew that's going to be six chapters from now or five chapters. So I want to make sure we cover that real quick. Okay, so Paul recognized the fact that the church discipline can result in godly sorrow. Um, and he's not apologetic about it. He's saying, I know that the church discipline I've been bringing on you has brought sorrow. He said, but I don't regret it. I don't regret bringing that sorrow in your life. Because godly sorrow produces remorse. Okay, godly sorrow produces remorse. What godly sorrow is, is remorse that comes from acknowledging your sin. You feel guilty and acknowledging the guilt of your sin is godly remorse. And by acknowledging one's guilt, that's the first step in forgiveness. Okay, listen, when I've, I've done jail ministries for 25, 30 years, and when I go in there, one of the first things I tell them is, listen, I don't, I'm not here to get you out of anything. I'm here to help you get through it, right? I want you to acknowledge what you did was wrong so that we can actually make strides in getting you back where you need to be. I'm not here to let you cover up what you did, right? And so it's important that no one will get better until they acknowledge what they've done wrong. That's what Paul was saying. I mean, you have to acknowledge what you've done wrong, and godly sorrow promotes that. 
right? It promotes that feeling of guilt that turns you back to God. So when you lovingly confront somebody and promote that godly sorrow in their life, that guilt, it's actually a good thing, even though it doesn't feel like it. It's actually a good thing because it can turn them to repentance. So in doing so, you might actually be the one that causes the offender to recognize the, you know, the recklessness of their ways. You might be that one. You might be the one that promotes uh, the kind of words that, that drives them to repentance. You know, as long as your goal is seeing them restored. Now, there are means of discipline where people are just doing it to be mean. And I've seen it. I, have no, I won't have any part of it. I've been called to sit on boards and stuff where, you know, they were dealing with pastors that needed, uh, you know, they felt needed church discipline and stuff. And when I get in there, if I feel like the spirit is mean, if I feel like the spirit is vindictive, if I feel like those other people are happy that he's going down, I'm out. Because that's not the kind of godly uh, d discipline that, he, that Paul's talking about here, right? Uh, godly discipline means you are showing them love, not hate. So hate has no place in it. So believers in churches who confront and discipline offenders, uh, that's actually a great sign of God's gracious love because that's how he treats us. Because again, doing so helps forgiveness and the, re the forgiveness and restoration process actually begin. And only when that process runs its course will they be successful again. Now, in verses 9 through 11, Paul reminded them that he wrote this to ensure they followed his instructions. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 2, 9. I wrote to you, uh, I wrote to you as I did to test and see if you would fully comply with my instructions. So Paul wanted to make sure that the Corinthians, his readers, actually were embracing the power of forgiveness that he was asking them to show. That's why he wrote it. Now he knew they were. Because... He knew what happens when people hold back forgiveness. Okay, he knew what happens. Some of the nastiest people you will ever meet in this world are people who are holding grudges. Some of the nastiest. There have been feuds that have lasted a century over grudges. Unbelievable. And so, I mean, it's one of those things he wanted to make sure that they were actually following his directions. And people say, well, why? I mean, have you read about him? I mean, they never do anything they're supposed to do. So he just wanted to make sure that they were actually listening to his advice and taking that advice. Because I'll tell you what, when you hold back forgiveness, or even when a church or an individual does, the most dangerous thing that happens, not only does anger stay with you, bitterness, like we said earlier, starts to set in. And bitterness punishes the one who is overwhelmed by it with a lack of forgiveness more than the offender. When you hold a grudge, it hurts you more than the person you're holding the grudge against. It, and if you ask your friends that will be honest with you or your family, since I've had this conflict, have I changed? Most of them will say, yeah. You're bitter. You're nasty. All you talk about is that person. You don't show any sign, not even a glimmer of wanting to show love and, and restoration. You just sow anger and bitterness. So, yeah, you've changed. It has changed you. Bitterness changes people and paul didn't want that church that he's working so hard to restore to let bitterness absolutely destroy it you know and i know they probably were a little offended let me see if you're actually doing what i told you but i mean their record for obedience isn't the most impressive right now in verses 10 and 11 uh, in verses 10 and 11 paul basically said that he had already forgiven this offender himself so look at this second corinthians 2 10 now remember this is the offender that caused paul it, paul's issues and even more so with the church. 2 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 10. When you forgive this man, I forgive him too. And when I forgive uh, whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit. So that Satan, listen, will not outsmart us, for we are familiar with his evil schemes. Now the Greek 
uh, tense of the word forgive in the Greek that's used here is actually, an, it implies an ongoing process. It implies an ongoing process. Because we have a skewed view of what forgiveness is in the Bible. Okay, you've heard the saying, forgive and forget. It's a farce. I'm not, I mean, you can say you forget, but that's just a very self-righteous lie. You do not forget when someone hurts you deeply. You don't forget it. So the Bible never says forgive and forget. That's not what he's trying to say here, okay? So it, the word forgive itself, that's especially the one that's used here, implies an ongoing process because that's what it is. Because biblical forgiveness is defined as treating someone as if they've never harmed you. That's what the definition for biblical forgiveness is. If biblical forgiveness was forgetting what someone did to you, we would never forgive anybody. We wouldn't. Because you can't forget that stuff, right? But you need to treat them as if they never harmed you. And what you find is when you do that, your heart softens toward them. Because our minds are very powerful. And if you can talk yourself into hating, if you can keep yourself angry for years or weeks or months or whatever it is, if you can keep yourself bitter for years at somebody, that's the self-talk you're putting into yourself that's making you stay there. When you tell yourself, okay, it's over, and if I got what I deserved, I wouldn't have heaven. I would have hell. So if I want to be anything like Christ, I've got to treat them differently. So you make yourself treat them different. And in the beginning, you might feel like kind of a hypocrite, right? But as you keep talking to yourself and reminding yourself and praying about it and saying, I, I know all the things I've done that God's forgiven me of. I can't be a hypocrite about it. I have got to show them kindness. The more you show them kindness, the easier it becomes to not forget, but to to bury the pain and be able to move on in a healthy relationship, right? That's really, really important. Because here's the thing. Paul knew that where grudges are being held, God isn't moving like he wants to. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 14. He said, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will what? Will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, listen to this. If you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. I've had people ask me about that so many times throughout my ministry. Well, I don't think it's fair that God won't forgive my sins. They're the ones that did wrong. Let's back that up and unpack that a little bit. You sure there's never a time that you've been the offender and you were crying out for God's forgiveness? How did you want God and the people you offended to treat you? That's how you have to treat them. Because God's saying, I gave you something you don't deserve. Grace, the word we love to throw around as a Christian. By the grace of God, there go I, blah, blah, blah. Listen, by the grace of God, quit being a big baby and forgive that person. You won't find that in the scripture, but, you know, in my version when it comes out, that's basically what he's saying. So Paul knew that God's not going to bless them if they're not going to forgive others because God won't forgive them. If you've ever held a grudge, you know that while you're holding out, while you're in the middle of that grudge, you are not as close to God as you used to be. You know, and if you, you may not want to admit that, but whenever I've held something against someone, when I pray, have you ever had that feeling where your prayer just feels kind of numb? Where you're saying the things, you know, you're supposed to say, but you don't have anything behind it? Have you ever been there? It's like kind of like when you pray for somebody because God says pray for your enemy and you really don't want to. You know what I mean? Now, God understands that. But when you're holding a grudge and refusing to try to forgive, God's going to bring that to your remembrance every time you start to pray. It starts to push you away from God. Why? Because you are living in anger and bitterness, and that's the enemy. If you're living in God, it's love and grace and forgiveness. That's where you've got to stay. Is it easy? No, it's not. 
But do you really want to be the old guy that's 75 years old and still angry about something that happened when you were 40? Is that who you want to be? You know, and you know what ends up happening is your kids will latch onto that, and they'll have that anger and bitterness. Your family, and it causes a, basically a feud. That's not what God intended for believers. He wants you to be free. Forgiveness frees you. Forgiveness is freedom, okay? A lack of forgiveness imprisons the one who refuses to forgive more than the offender. It's, that, it's just that simple, right? Now, in verses 12, uh, 12 through, 212 through chapter 7, verse 4, Paul kind of takes a detour because God opens another door for ministry, and we'll get, at least get started in this. 2 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13 says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when I... Uh, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, that means an opportunity, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother, but saying farewell to them, I went on to Macedonia. Okay, so Paul went to Troas, and God opens this door of opportunity for ministry. And he takes it. But his heart was heavy because he was hoping to see Titus there with good news. Eventually he will see Titus, but he was hoping to have good news. And have you ever really wanted to know, like, somebody's in the hospital or someone's in trouble or something, you really want to know what's going on with them, and you just can't find out? You know that heaviness in your heart, like, gosh, I wish I knew what was going on with them. Uh, you know, that feeling? This is how Paul felt. They were like his kids. You know, imagine if your kid goes up to college and you don't hear from him for six months, which, you know, is very highly likely to happen, just so you know. Um, but imagine that. You, the whole time you're going, what? I wonder what's going on. You know what I mean? And you worry. That's what he's saying. He wasn't saying he didn't want to serve them because of that. He was just saying he, he served them gladly, but with this heavy heart, he was still worried about them, right? So despite this new and exciting opportunity, he was still just restless, you know, with uh, Corinthians. So Paul actually preached the gospel at Troas and then bid them farewell and moved on to Macedonia. But despite being worried about the Corinthians, Paul understood something. He had a job to do. He had a job to do. And Paul's job was to preach the gospel to whoever will listen. That was his job. He could not allow the, Corinthian, the Corinthians' issues to keep him from doing his job. If their issues become his issues, now he becomes ineffective. He didn't want to get pulled away from doing his job. If he let the Corinthians' issue hinder him, uh, issues hinder him, I mean, that would have been a win for the enemy. The enemy saying, great, the Corinthian church is all screwed up, and now Paul's too messed up in the head to preach. Win. You know? They're not forgiving. Paul's not forgiving. Nobody's forgiving. Now everybody's mad. I love this. That's what the enemy's saying. You know, and Paul's saying, I can't do that. I'm not going to feed into that. I'm not going to allow your issues to keep me from serving. I've got to be obedient even if you're not. So regardless of all the disappointments and all the setbacks in life, he was willing to do his job. And believers have to realize we have a job to do. Look what it says in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. This is Jesus speaking. He says, you are the salt of the earth. I love that verse. Because I love salt, and I'm tired of people telling me I can't have it. Jesus said, salt is good. Leaving it there. You are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Kind of like that imitation salt. I'm going to leave this go. I could, my wife's not here to hear this anyways. I'm going to let this go. Um, you are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city uh, on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone 
will praise your heavenly Father. Okay, Paul understood that. We need to. Like Paul, our job is to be an example to this world. Our job is to be an example to this world. And we should live lives that reveal the transforming power of the love of Christ. You know what? When people say you're not the same, that's a compliment. When they say you're not the Chris I went to high school with, I don't go, oh, man. I remember that guy. I'm glad he's dead. You know, I, you, we need to show them how God has transformed our lives, how we're different through the love of Christ. That's what our job is. And not just to those that we like or those we don't have a problem with. We're supposed to be examples to everyone. Sometimes I think we take that responsibility too lightly. But remember, God doesn't. He gave us that responsibility because it's important. God expects us to do everything we do in a way that glorifies and honor him, like the basket or like the lamp on the lampstand. Right? You put a lamp on a lampstand so it spreads its light to everyone in the room. That's what we're supposed to be. When we come into a room, when we come into a, a family, when we come into an area, we should be bringing the light of Christ with us. That's our job. And anything that keeps us from doing that is a problem we've got to get solved. Now, sadly, the problem is most believers in our time and in our country, and this sounds terrible. Now, notice I said in our time and our country because we're kind of protected. Okay, but most believers in our time and in our country have become spoiled. Wouldn't you agree? We're spoiled and desperately so. So spoiled that we have enough time on our hands to bicker and fight about stupid stuff. Right. We are spoiled. We seldom face severe or even moderate persecution. I mean, seldom. And I'm not saying we'll never face persecution or challenges because you will and you do. I mean, that's that's part of being a Christian. But nothing compared to what Paul and the apostles and the disciples had to face. Nothing compared to that. Because we might get made fun of. We might have to fight against the school system, which is very likely. We might have to fight against the college. We might have to, you know, make a stand at work to make sure we're able to have the same rights. We might have to make a stand in government. I mean, we, there are things we have to deal with. Don't take me wrong. There are, dis there are disappointments we have to face. But they were facing the threat of death and imprisonment. Because people could literally kill them. For being a believer in the government wouldn't even say anything. It was like hunting season on believers. You know, you could throw them in jail, you could kill them. We've never had to face that. Now in China, they're facing that. In the Sudan, they're facing that. There are areas all throughout the Arab, the Arab nations that you can't even hardly murmur the name or whisper the name of Jesus. And if they catch you with the one page in China, they were, I read this story about these people that were, there was one Bible they got their hands on, because there's billions of people there. They got one Bible. And this community tore pages out, books out of this one Bible, and shared it underground with the believers in that neighborhood. That's how they would meet in basements, excited to read a portion someone had torn out and left for them there, knowing that if a guard were to walk in the basement, they were dead. Right? Look at the passion behind believers who have to face real persecution. You know, you got to ask yourself, would you carry those pages in your house knowing it could cost you your life? That's something to chew on, right? But we have been spoiled. And that doesn't mean we can't learn from their persecution. It was way worse than ours, so let's at least learn from it if we're not experiencing it. Because no matter how difficult our challenges are or what we face, how we handle them is the same as how the apostles had to handle them. That really hasn't changed. If we want to impact the world like Paul and the apostles did, imitate their attitudes, which is amazing to me. Their attitudes amaze me. Because it's their attitude and passion for God and their priorities that made them succeed. If you're going to achieve that kind of success, it requires a change in our attitudes about challenges. 
Now, let's be honest. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many times when hard times come, do you get mad at God? And believe me, I counsel a lot of people. We get mad at God. Something goes wrong in our life, and instead of saying, God, help me get through this, the first thing we say is, why are you doing this to me, God? Let's be honest. We've all done that, haven't we? Or we say, you know, I don't understand, God. That guy doesn't even believe, and he's a billionaire. Here, I go to church every week, and I'm barely getting by paycheck to paycheck. You know, like, so why is he getting so blessed? Talk to him a week after he died and see who's blessed. Talk to him a week after you died and see who's blessed. We have wealth that can't be measured until we walk on those streets. That's the wealth we have. But we have that attitude that every time something goes wrong, every time there's a challenge, it's a bad thing. See, Paul knew that challenges are part of ministry, and accomplishing God's plan is more important than worrying about his own discomforts and struggles. He knew that was going to happen. That's why he said, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that should be revealed to us. Romans 8.18. He says that because he's going, he acknowledged his sufferings. Paul wasn't walking around saying, thank you for whipping me. That's not what he was saying. He wasn't saying, please put me in prison with the rats. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, yeah, prison, rats, whipping, but I'm going to heaven. That's his attitude. And I, I, I love, I love that attitude. He never let his struggles keep him from doing what God asked him to do. What we forget is that God often allows challenges in our life. Did you know that? He doesn't send them. Pay attention to what I'm saying. God doesn't send challenges, all of our challenges, on us. I grew up, people always said, if you did something wrong, God sent it on you. So I grew up believing God was hiding in an alley with a baseball bat ready to split my skull every time I walked down that. That's all I thought he was. Because everything that went wrong, oh, what'd you do? God must have sent that on you. Listen, we have struggles that God allows allows and a lot of times he allows those struggles and those challenges to strengthen our faith right he wants us to get to know him better in the you ever notice the friends that you make in tragic times are some of the strongest friends you'll ever have the ones you make uh that have a common interest through a death or through you know something like that those friends stay friends forever it's kind of the same thing god's saying i want you to know that you are not going to face anything without me I'll be there if you'll let me be, right? He's saying, I, I want you to go through this struggle. I'm not bringing it on you, but I'm not pulling you out of it either. Because I know that a lot of times, it's when we get rock bottom, we will actually turn to him and give him a shot. And he wants us to get to that point so that we will find out, I've been here the whole time. If you'd have asked, I would have helped you in the beginning. He wants us to get to know him during those struggles. And when we give him the opportunity to be God, he is God. Every time. Always, always shows up. Even through the severe struggles like the apostles, the apostles and the apostles. That's a new word, a mixture of disciple and apostle. Apostles. Lord, help me. Anyway, but, um, you know, I mean, even if it's severe persecution, they still got to see God move uh, through all of that, and it was just amazing. You know, if you saw some of the betrayal and stuff that Paul had to deal with, because what you're thinking when I read this is, yeah, Pastor, but you don't know what I'm dealing with. My wife left, or a good friend betrayed me, or my husband left, or whatever the case is. You have no idea what the Apostle Paul's life was like. That man was, I mean, wanted, and not in a good way, right? Everywhere he went, he was like Jesse James. They wanted to put him in jail or kill him. I mean, he was betrayed by his friends. He was betrayed by his countrymen. He was criticized for everything, right? Uh, he had to face constant power struggles and constant attacks all the time, and he faced attacks and criticism from all sides. That's what was even worse. 
He got it from the pagans. He got it from the Jews. And even some believers were persecuting him. Can you believe that? If you've been a believer for a while, it shouldn't be too hard. Because I'll be honest with you, some of the worst persecution I've faced has been from believers, right, who are miserable and trying to find a way to punish me for what they're struggling with. All right, let me give you some examples. The Grecian philosophers and the intellectuals of his time were constantly after him. And the reason they were constantly after him was because they were jealous of where God had put him and how people were seeing him. People get jealous like that still in ministry today. There's terrible ministerial jealousy. But they would be condescending and critical of everything he said and always tried to make him look dumb and always tried to challenge him because they couldn't stand not being the smartest guy in the room and have everybody look up to them. He had to deal with that no matter where he went. He had those people always criticizing him, right? He also faced persecution from jealous, power-hungry church leaders. If you think that just because we're Christians, we won't persecute each other, you're crazy. I'm telling you, some of the most, I mean, brutal attacks I've endured have been from other ministry leaders, right? Whether it be jealousy, greed, pride, I don't know. But I, I'm telling you, Paul had to deal with it ten times worse. The big thing with Paul was he refused to let his resolve be broken or even weakened by anyone because he knew that only those who trust in God, only those people who trust in God's wisdom actually have the peace and succeed. He knew that. This is what he's trying to convey to them. Okay, now, verses 14 through 17, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them because I'm going over. Uh, but I just want to read them to you uh, because this is kind of his way of shifting from warning to being a little more encouraging. Uh, verse 14, he says, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and manifests, us, or manifests uh, through us the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ uh, to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To, one, uh, to the one, an aroma from death to death, uh, to, the, uh, to another, an aroma from life to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So, oh, I want to spend more time on this than I can. I'll, get, I'll come back to it next week. Let's say that. But anyway, despite facing, you know, all these critics and stuff, Paul did stay God-focused. I'm trying to get through this quickly. And, and he reminded them that no matter how the world views them, what's important is how God views them, right? And he was saying that to those who are believers, their faith was refreshing, like a pleasant aroma. Like, what's that stuff you spray called? Febreze. <laughs> we become Febreze, you know? We make the stank smell good, right, <laughs> to, the, to believers. To unbelievers, that aroma is a little different to unbelievers, right? To unbelievers, it's a breath of fresh air in a stagnant world, but that breath of fresh air makes them fearful. They're afraid of the change, you know, because they can deny God if they want, but they can't deny the evidence of his moving in our lives. And when they see that, they have to acknowledge that fragrant aroma that it's talking about. And like a fragrant aroma in the air, it reminds us there's something better, right? It just reminds us there's something better. But a lack of forgiveness can turn that fragrant aroma in believers into a stench of anger and bitterness, right? But here's the thing. Where grace and forgiveness abound, there's joy and freedom in that fragrant aroma being a relief and refreshing to people. So I guess the moral of the story is try to smell refreshing in your faith. <laughs> no, that's not the moral of the story. But anyway, we have to stop there. We'll pick up there next week. I'm going to ask you would to please bow your heads. If this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation very briefly. 
Um, if you're not sure where you stand or you'd like me to pray for you, whoever you are, I don't need to know why, but I will pray for you. If you make eye contact with me, bless those people. Put your head right back down. Bless those people. And I do pray for you. Bless those people. If you're watching or listening online, God knows your heart. I'll be praying for you. But believers, going through Corinthians is so God-ordained for us because this is what happens when churches lose their focus. But the blessing is that the same things he was telling the Corinthians to get them back in line work for us to get back in line. We need to get that fire, that passion again. We need to realize that we, are, we should be coming from a place of love in everything we do, and if we're not, we need to check it. Right? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. I thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. And I just thank you, God, that when there's no way, when we don't know how we're going to move, how we're going to go forward, you always come up and come up big. There's so many times we don't give you the space in our life that you require. And because of that, we're not who we need to be yet. But keep disciplining us. Keep showing us the air of our ways because we want to be closer to you. We just pray, God, that there's someone here who doesn't know you. Just remind them that everything Jesus did on that cross was for them, just like they are. There's nothing they have to trade or exchange. There's nothing they have to do. They don't have to get better. They just have to believe. And if they do, you'll start changing them in ways they can't even imagine. And for those of us who are believers, we need to remember back when we had that passion, back when the, you changed us and made us into something better. I just pray, God, that we reach back in our minds and bring out that passion so that people can see us as the light and that fragrant aroma so that when we come into a place we bring your spirit with us we just pray god as we leave here you would keep us safe let us live what we profess and if we don't return to take us home before we meet again let us come together one more time and give you all the praise and honor and glory you're so worthy of and we ask these things in jesus name amen